Well, hello, everyone. My name's Eric Tonis, and it's so good to be here with you. Thank you. I love this church, and I've been privileged to be able to preach here a few times, and opening God's Word with God's people is a great privilege that I don't take lightly. So I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be here. I love the leaders of this church. I love what God's doing here through the years as I've been able to see that. I am a follower of Jesus. I can't remember a time in my life that Jesus wasn't my life, and I'm grateful for him. I'm the husband of Donna for 34 years, and I'm the father of four delightful children that I love dearly, and I'm also a pastor at Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, and I teach theology at Biola University, so I'm grateful to get to be here. And I have felt a lot of weight for what we're about to do in the next few minutes going into God's Word because what we're after is transformed hearts that grow in humility as we crush pride that we all battle. And that takes a miracle. That doesn't just happen. Proud human beings like myself don't grow in humility without God doing it. And so let's go to God's Word if you have your Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version if you have digital options, but we are going to God's Word, asking the Spirit of God who inspired this Word to change our hearts tonight and grow in humility before Him. So let's pray as we go to God's Word here in Luke chapter 7. Lord, we're grateful for the joy of being blood-bought, forgiven, justified, adopted children. Lord, this is an incredible privilege that's your doing. And so, Lord, as we go now to your word, I pray that those who are here who don't know you would come to saving knowledge of Jesus tonight. And those of us who do know you, I pray we would grow in our intimacy with you through Christ and that we would grow in humility and that pride would be crushed in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that there are two fundamental facts of human enlightenment. One, there is a God. And two, you are not him. It's amazing and almost stunning that we need to be told that, but we do. The fact that there's a God, if we pay attention to just creation and reality itself and human beings is undeniable. But the fact is, in every human heart is this instinct to take God's place, to dethrone him and put ourselves in his place. That's been the reality since the garden that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, that human beings decided for themselves to determine good from evil and take God's place because we thought we knew better. And that's been the human problem ever since. You could call it pride, ultimately pride in thinking we know better than God. And so we do need that reminder that there's a God and you're not him and we're after humility. And I don't know about you, but humility does not come naturally to me. And I'm told in the word of God, it doesn't come naturally to any of you either. Now, humility can look lots of different ways, but we have to realize that a humble heart before God is what we have to have to be in right relationship with God. We don't come to God on our terms, with our agendas, 
our job description for him of what he better be like if he's going to get our worship. But that's the human instinct. And we've got to step back and recognize that God is God and we are not. And there's a dramatic difference between who he is and who we are. Isn't it amazing when you see humility on display? Do you know who Sir Edmund Hillary was? He, along with his amazing uh, Sherpa uh, named Torgay, he was the first man with his trusty Sherpa to ascend Mount Everest. Can you imagine being able to say that? That's like the ultimate thing to be able to say in a conversation. You know, at every party, I'd be inclined to make sure that gets told. You know, somebody tells an impressive story and you say, well, that's good, but I'm the first guy to get up Mount Everest. It sort of kills any competitiveness at the party, right? And I would be inclined to do that all the time. But in spite of the fact that he had been the first man to climb Mount Everest, that he had attained all kinds of incredible accolades and awards and accomplishments. He was a fighter pilot in World War II. He was recognized in, in Nepal and in his home country of New Zealand with all sorts of honors throughout his life. And even into his old age, it was said that he was an incredibly humble man. There's actually a story of when he went back to Nepal and he was around Mount Everest and some people recognized who he was and they said, would you please take a photograph with us? And they gave him an ice pick that mountain climbers use and they said, would you hold this for the photograph? And they gathered around him and just as they were about to take the picture, a man walked by who was a mountaineer who didn't recognize Sir Edmund Hillary and he said, excuse me, sir. You were not holding that ice axe properly. And he went over and he adjusted it to show Sir Edmund Hillary how to hold the ice axe properly. And everybody said that Hillary just said, oh, thank you. And he held it the way the man told him to. That's not how I would have reacted at all. I would have wanted to make sure that man was put in his place. But that kind of humility is rare. But it's the kind of humility we need to find in our own hearts as God works in our hearts. And so we've got to serve this, God, in this way. And it's hard, isn't it? In a social media culture that's all about selfies. I mean, the word selfie didn't even exist when I was a kid. But now selfies are the constant mode so many of us are in. Look at this young lady in this photograph. I'm, I'm just amazed by her. As she is standing in front of one of the eight great wonders of the ancient world, the Acropolis, the Parthenon, right? Could we leave that up there for a second? Um, just look but that, that sort of typifies our world, right? That she's the prominent thing in the photo she's taking, not this awesome wonder of the ancient world. But that's how we are. We're taught to be self-absorbed. It's encouraged all the time by well-intentioned teachers and coaches and parents. We have our heads pumped up all the time, and we're even told things like, you can do anything you set your mind to. Is that true? Now hear me, I'm all for helping people realize that most of us can do way more than we think we can. But who can do anything he sets his mind to? God. Who else? No one. 
The next time a well-intentioned teacher, coach, or parent says to you, you can do anything you set your mind to, you should just say, blasphemy. That's blasphemy. That's only true of God. And we overstate things in our efforts to encourage each other. And we talk to each other as if we're God, as if we're all powerful, as if we can do anything we determine to do. No, we are frail creatures, awesome creatures made by God in his image. But we're creatures and we're dependent on the creator for every heartbeat, every breath, every molecule, every atom. And so we are taught constantly to exalt ourselves even to the place of God. And this, the, the, this evening's message it flies right in the face of that. We've got to realize that, see how frail I am. I almost tripped over that. And that would have been great. It's a great illustration if that happened. So, um, the, but the challenge of humility is a challenge. And I need to wake up every morning and go to war with pride. Every morning. But even though it's so hard, you do realize it's a command. Listen to 1 Peter 5. You, you younger men, here's what it says. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't want God opposed to me. Do you? I want grace. And God says the ones who receive grace are the humble ones. The ones who receive opposition from God are the proud ones. And here's the command. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We live in about as comfortable as a, a society that has ever existed, yet there's more anxiety maybe than ever has ex existed. And, and we find the way to exaltation and shalom, peace, and freedom from depression and anxiety and worry and all these things, not by exalting ourselves, but humbling ourselves before God and allowing him to exalt us before him. And the key is knowing that all we have is a gift from God. L listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? That's a rhetorical question, you know? right? Nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, we have to humble ourselves before God, realizing everything's gift. See, the American mentality is being a self-made man. That thing's never existed. Nobody's a self-made man. We're all utterly dependent on God for our very existence. And so this, this humility has to come from God humbling us under his mighty hand. And please don't think humility self-loathing. This is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not, oh, I'm a horrible person. No, you're made in God's image. You actually are capable of reflecting God. You're an awesome creature. But the kind of confidence that comes from that sort of humility frees you from being self-absorbed. Uh, one of my favorite philosophers who said many wise things is a man named Mike Tyson. 
some of you might are be too young to remember Mike Tyson, and you just see him as a novelty now. But back back in the late '80s, early '90s, he was the baddest man on the planet in a boxing ring, and and he was just annihilating everybody in the ring. Sometimes within ten seconds. And, and he said some pretty brilliant things. I have a strange fascination with Mike Tyson. I'm sorry. He's, he's a fascinating character. He, rages, he raises pigeons. He has since he was a kid. He, he's from New York City. And he, he was a, a, a kid who got picked on a lot, actually. He has a speech impediment. And, and, and remember, near the end of his career, he was getting kind of desperate. And he fought a guy named Evander Holyfield. And he, he actually bit a chunk out of Evander Holyfield's ear. And then in the next round, they let the fight keep going. He took another chunk out of the other ear. Those two guys actually have a candy product now that's a piece of Evander Holyfield's ear. Quite bizarre, but marketing wins in that situation. But, but I remember Mike had to go for counseling to find out if he could get his boxing license back. Extensive six-month counseling which is interesting. Are you psychologically fit to beat people up for a living is an interesting question. But, but he had to go for counseling, and I saw the interview and he, he says brilliant things. One time, Trevor Burvick, he was about to fight Trevor Burvick, and, and somebody said, uh, how are you going to do it? And he said, well, I have a plan. Everybody who fought Mike hasn't had a plan, but I have a plan. And they said, Mike, what do you think of, think of that? And he said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> oh, is that true? Not just in boxing, but in life. Isn't that true? But they said, they said what did you learn about yourself in counseling, Mike? And he said, I learned two very important things. First, I have absolutely no self-esteem. And second, I may be the biggest egomaniac on the planet. And you think, well, you can't be both of those, can you? Yes, you can. You see, the human makeup, I've realized, is this pendulum swing between insecurity over to arrogance and back to insecurity. And we're sort of this bundle of insecurity and arrogance all at the same time. You ever notice a guy who talks about himself at the party nonstop is actually deep down insecure? I mean, if you're not insecure, why do you gotta talk about yourself all the time? And so what we're after is actually a deep, profound confidence that comes from humility. That's what we want. That's what we're after here is what God is able to do in our lives and hearts. And so I want to get here by going to a meal in the Bible. I love this theme that, that this series is on. Uh, uh, meals with Jesus. Food is a huge concept in the Bible. Did you know that? I mean, think, of, think about how many times food is a really important issue in the Bible. Uh, what's the issue in the garden? God blesses them with all this food right before them. And then what's the issue? A piece of fruit in the fall. And then it just keeps going, you know? Esau sells his birthright for a, a bowl of porridge. And then throughout the law, you've got all these dietary and food laws, and you got fasting as part of religious observance, and you got feasts that are in the law, and you've got uh, all kinds of issues of manna in the wilderness, right, and water from a rock. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus says he's the bread of heaven. 
right? And what's the central observance of Christian worship, the Lord's Supper, and how's it all going to end one day with a wedding banquet? Isn't that cool? Food's all over the Bible. Oh, yeah. Noah's son who caused all the problem was ham. See, it's everywhere. I'm sorry about that. I just had to slip that horrible joke in there. But yeah, but, but a theology of food is huge in the Bible. And Jesus does some serious work at mealtimes, like the one we're about to look at. And, and I want to show you humility on display in the life of someone. You know, we've talked a lot about what humility is in theory, but there's something about seeing it in someone that really makes it hit home. And I want to introduce you to one of my heroes tonight. You may find this strange, but I actually have a document on my computer with a list of people I want to meet in heaven in the order I want to meet them. It's kind of strange, maybe. Of course, Jesus is at the top of the list. I don't know. Will there be a waiting list? Everybody's going to want to see him, right? But, but then I, I've had these heroes of the faith near the top of the list for a long time. You know, Peter and Paul and Elijah and Isaiah and Moses. But as I've grown in my Christian life, there have been people in the Bible moving up the list consistently to the point where they're right at the top now. And they're people whose names we don't even know. People like that one leper. Ten were healed, but one came back to praise God with gratitude. We don't even know his name. I want to know who that guy is in heaven and have a conversation. Well, you think there'll be a directory or something? I don't know, but I want to find him. I want to find that woman whose name we don't even know who in the midst of some ostentatious displays of giving in the temple, she comes along and gives a couple pennies. And Jesus calls his disciples and says, guys, come here. See that widow? She just gave more than everybody. And they say, what are you talking about? She gave next to nothing. And he says, no, she gave everything she had. And he exalted. We don't even know that she knew Jesus did that. She might have had a way to heaven to find out that the Savior commended her in that way. I want to meet the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus desperate. And he said, but you're a Gentile. And she said, I'll take even the crumbs off the table. And he exalts her as a woman of great faith. I want to know the woman whose, again, name we don't even know, who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Desperate, outcast, unclean all the time. And in her desperation, she makes her way through the crowd and grabs Jesus' garment, and he feels healing power go out of him, and she's healed, and he exalts her faith. See, those are the people I want to meet. I want to meet the man in Mark 5 who was so demon-possessed that he ran around naked and lived in a graveyard and cut himself screaming out at night, terrifying people in the garrisons until his footsteps and Jesus met on the shore and he was healed and freed forever and he could rejoin society. We don't know his name either. You know, we're told all the time, make a name for yourself. 
when our job is to make a name for Jesus in our lives. And the woman I want to meet tonight, whose name we don't even know, is an incredible example of humility because she got to the end of herself and got to the feet of Jesus, which is where we all need to get if we're going to find life in him. Luke chapter 7 has her story. Listen to this. Luke 7, verse 36. Here we go. Luke 7, 36. Help us, Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. How would you like that to be your description? She's a woman from the city who was a sinner. That's what we know about her now. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet. Now, here's what I want you to pay attention as we go through this. She is a picture of humility. But it's not passive. Humility is not shrinking in a corner, thinking you're not worthy and self-loathing and and self-hatred. No. Look how active her humility is. Watch all these verbs. There are eight verbs used to describe her. She learned, right, in verse 37, that he was reclining at table. So what does she do? She brings, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And then standing beside him, behind him, at his feet, weeping. So she's learning, bringing, standing, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered and said, teacher, say it. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 500 denarii is two years' wages. What do you make in two years? That's what we're talking about here. 50 is two months' wages, dramatically less. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oils, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. 
but he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Oh, what an amazing story. Is this an amazing story? Is she amazing? Anybody who thinks the Bible's boring must not have ever read it one time. This is incredible. Listen to this story. First of all, it's easy to look down on Simon, but let's give him some credit here. First of all, unlike other Pharisees, except for ones like Nicodemus, who is willing to meet with Jesus at night, he invites him to his home. He's curious enough to have him over. And said, so this Messiah is causing quite a stir. Most of my colleagues among the Pharisees are in opposition to him, but I want to hear from him. I'm going to have him in my home. I wonder if he's a real prophet. Now he concludes he must not be to let this woman carry on like this. But he's interested. He's willing to listen. There's something admirable here. But Jesus wants him to realize that he's got an intellectual interest in Jesus, but not an affective heart interest in him. He welcomes him to his home, but not with the kind of affection and worship and adoration of this woman who knows she's been forgiven. And this woman, this hero of ours, is a beautiful mess. She comes in likely a prostitute. And she lets down her hair in the midst of all these important, good-looking religious people. And she lets down her, her hair and she weeps at the feet of Jesus, recognizing her desperation before him. You know, if you read about this passage in commentaries, a lot can be made about a, a sexual nature to this woman who in normal life wouldn't let down her hair and she wouldn't use this ointment, which may have been a way of attracting men. But she changes these things that were used for evil. And this is what God does. He redeems them. And now these things, gifts from God, are used as an act of worship. We live in such an overly sexualized culture. It's just tragic. You know, Sigmund Freud said that he thought worship was just a repressed sexual desires leaking out in worship. I think it's actually the opposite. I think sexual immorality and sexual idolatry and being over-sexualized is the leaking out of worship instincts. And, and this woman displays this beautiful vulnerability before all these religious leaders in Jesus. She's a beautiful mess. She's naked and unashamed in a sense here in this expression of devotion to Jesus because she recognizes her desperate need for him and that he loves extravagantly and he loves expressively. And he loves expensively. And so that's how she loves him in return. We love because he first loved us. I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, but it's so true. Loved people. Love people. The more you realize your love, the more you will be freed up to love God and others. And so this woman stands as an incredible example to us tonight 
of beauty that's messy in the midst of this fallen world. Appearances can be deceiving. The impressive-looking religious people weren't getting it, and she was in an amazing way. The Bible says man looks at the heart, but man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so her love mirrored the love she received from Jesus. And it was extravagant and expensive and expressed like David who danced with all his might in his worship of God, even with the disdain of his wife in response. She knew she had been forgiven much. Do you realize how much you need forgiveness? Do you realize how God loves to forgive exhaustively? The accuser of the brethren is what Satan's called, and he loves to remind us of our sin and our failure. But Jesus comes and he offers forgiveness that covers it all. His blood covers it all. He frees us from sin and bondage and guilt and shame that would otherwise crush us. And you may be in your 60s, but he may still, Satan, be reminding you of things you did in high school that that were shameful. And Jesus is here to free us from all of that, to free you from sin and offer forgiveness. Do you realize how much you need forgiveness? And do you realize if you've trusted Christ, how much you've been forgiven? My wife is an incredible person, but there's nothing more precious to be about my wife than than this woman I knew since we were 16. But when she came to know Jesus at 19, she realized that he freed her from her sin. And she's never forgotten, and she can't talk about what Jesus has done for her without tearing up, without it gripping her. Do you know you've been forgiven? I'm convinced more and more at the very heart of the Christian life is realizing the glory of Jesus because we've been forgiven much in him. Oh, our sin is great, but his grace is greater still. That's the message of the gospel. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. No one is righteous. No one. And so Jesus comes and he forgives exhaustively. And when we realize that deeply, we love extravagantly too. We're not living our lives constantly thinking about a cost-benefit analysis or the return on investment of giving. We're able to give when people are in need, like giving an offering to the folks struggling up in the mountains. I love that. There's this instinct to give. This generosity of God's people should be a mark of who we are. Oh, we're known for a lot of things as Christians in this culture, but are we known for a humility? Are we known for people who know we've been forgiven much and then love extravagantly and generously out of that because of how generously God has loved us? That should be a mark of a Christian as much as anything. Listen to Michael Morrison. Usefulness is not the most important thing in the universe. Usefulness is not our God. Efficiency is not our God. Public opinion is not our God. Traditional boundaries of politeness are not our God. Jesus is our God. And it is useful to use up our material resources to honor and glorify him. God himself is extravagant in the way he loves He gave us the extravagant gift of his son, Jesus Christ. It was an outrageous gift worth far more than we could ever deserve. And the grace of God in Christ 
gives us everything we need. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it. He who gave us his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave you his son, why would you doubt him for your daily bread? If he gave us his son, why would you doubt him to care for you tomorrow? Whatever comes your way, he's worthy of trust. And if you ever doubt that, look at Jesus in our place, in his life and death and resurrection, and know God loves extravagantly. And when we understand this, that Jesus became poor so we might become rich, we can live lives of self-sacrificial humility. Listen to Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, he, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you hear that? God for us, as much as he can be in Christ, realized and taken to heart, becomes the paradigm out of which we then live. Freed by the love of God, poured into our hearts to now let that love spill over toward other people. Loving with reckless abandon. Loving in ways that nice moral religious people might see as a bit extreme. One of my heroes died last week. Her name is Ruth Dix. And she has been part of our church for many years. And she and her husband, Richard, an incredible man. This is Ruth. If you could just leave her up there, that'd be great. Um, um, this is Ruth. Ruth, Ruth was a, an amazing physician who had quite a successful uh, practice in Orange County. And her husband was a successful builder, and they decided to go spend their lives in the Congo, serving people in medicine and building who desperately needed it and had nothing to pay. Richard would literally build the hospital and Ruth would run it and save thousands of lives of babies and mothers. And they spent their life doing that. And then they retired, came off the mission field and were part of our church for years. But then they heard after the civil war had happened in the Congo that the hospital they had built and run had been significantly destroyed during the war and the hospital wasn't functioning. And so Richard and Ruth in their 70s, unretired. And they went back to the Congo and Richard rebuilt the hospital and Ruth started saving lives again as a physician, serving with incredible self-sacrifice and humility because they came to know at an early age in their life that Jesus had given himself for them and took their place and that they had been forgiven much. And that had so gripped them that they lived their whole lives in self-sacrificial service to others. They came off the mission field. And as Ruth's health failed through the years and her eyes were almost lost completely of sight. And she had to be wheeled in the church in a wheelchair. 
her circulatory problems and her, her, her uh, muscular dystrophy and, and her, her battles she was having physically, she would come to church without fail and show up to women's Bible study without fail and she'd break out her Bible in a magnifying glass and, and a flashlight and she'd read the sermon. And this incredibly wise woman, this godly woman, would learn every week Every time the church opened, Ruth was there serving people, praying for people, caring for people. After the first service, we would have three services, and after the first service, I would go find Ruth after I preached, and I'd say, Ruth, you got any feedback for me? And she always had something. She'd say, Eric, you need to get to the gospel a little sooner next time. <laughs> Eric, that point wasn't very clear. Or... It was all about you this morning. It can't be that way. That's the kind of woman she was. And a week ago Monday, after lots of struggles physically, she and Richard were lying in bed, and she just reached over, and she held Richard's hand. And she looked up, and she said, Jesus, I love you, but I want to go home now. And five minutes later, she was home. I bet none of you have even heard of Ruth Dix. Oh, we know names like Kanye, Brittany, Lizzo, LeBron. But I think when Ruth Dix, a week ago Monday, showed up in heaven, People were saying, hey, did you hear who showed up today? Ruth Dix is here. You see, God has a different definition of hero than we tend to. He's got a different definition of a life that really matters than we tend to. This woman, all we know about her before this scene is she's a sinner from the city. And Jesus says, she gets it. I want to get it. I don't want to seek things that are wood, hay, and stubble, and vapor, and don't last, and don't matter. I want to live like Ruth. I want to live like this woman. A beautiful mess that pours out my life as an offering to the Savior who gave himself so we could live. Jesus is not supposed to be a really important part of our lives. He is our lives. Heavenly Father, help us. We can be so infiltrated with worldly, shallow ways of thinking, feeling, and living. Lord, thank you for this hero in this passage. And heroes like Richard and Ruth Dix, who show us what it looks like to get to the end of ourselves and at the feet of Jesus. Lord, we can't be proud if we hang out at the feet of Jesus. So I pray that that would be who we are. I thank you for this church. I thank you for humble leaders who know they've been forgiven. I thank you for congregations is making a difference because they know they've been forgiven. And Lord, I pray you continue to do great things in this church family for generations to come until Jesus returns. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.